Luke 19 and 1 says, And Jesus entered and passed through Jericho. And behold, there was a man named Zacchaeus. Some might pronounce it Zacchaeus, I'm not sure, but we're going with Zacchaeus today. Which was the chief among the publicans, and he was rich. And he sought to see Jesus, who he was, and could not for the press. In other words, there was a big crowd, and he couldn't see the Lord because he was little of stature. He was only a short little fellow. And he ran before, got ahead of the crowd, and climbed up into a sycamore tree to see him, for he was to pass that way. And when Jesus came to the place, he looked up and saw him and said unto him, Zacchaeus, make haste or quickly and come down for today I must abide at thy house. And he made haste and came down and received him joyfully. And when they saw it, that's the crowd, particularly the religious leaders, they all murmured saying that he was gone to be a guest with a man that is a sinner. And Zacchaeus stood and said unto the Lord, Behold, Lord, the half of my goods I give to the poor, and if I have taken anything from any man by false accusation, I restore him fourfold. And Jesus said unto him, This day is salvation come to this house, for so much as he also is a son of Abraham. For the Son of Man is come to seek and to save that which was lost." Father, we thank you for your goodness. We thank you for your presence this morning. We thank you for every soul that's in your house. We pray that you open our hearts, Lord, that your word would be mingled with faith. And, Lord, that your will would be done, we pray. We give you all the glory and all the honor in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. This account, the story of Zacchaeus, is only recorded here in Luke's Gospel. It's a story that children often learn in Sunday school. There's a little song that you learn in Sunday school sometimes about Zacchaeus, which we won't do this morning. And we learn that song about the little man who climbed up in a tree to see Jesus. It's one of those stories that you might find yourself wondering, at least I may have found myself wondering, what's its purpose in the Scripture? Why do we need to know that there was a short little fellow that needed to climb a tree? What's that all about? It's maybe not some great theological revelation of who God is or as far as I'm aware, there's not a massive amount of prophecy in there that we can see. You may be able to help me with that later. But I mean, a lot of people wanted to see Jesus. If you read the scriptures, particularly when he was doing miracles, there were great crowds. Sometimes it was hard for him to move. In other places, there were times he tried to to almost hide himself from the crowd, but in one of the Gospels it says that he could not be hid. Such was the interest in this man from Galilee. And but So all these people were wanting to see Jesus, and so we have this short guy who had to climb a tree. But it, It's a nice story, but it's hardly on the same scale of you know bringing Lazarus back from the dead or cleansing ten lepers. It's just a little guy that climbed a tree. You know, It's not that big a deal. At least that's what we think. But I'm hoping that this morning we might be able to benefit from a little more from the story of Zacchaeus. The Bible tells us that Zacchaeus was a publican. Now, some of you will understand what that means. When we think of a publican in Australia, that's the guy that owns the pub. But a publican in Bible times was a tax collector. 
So he's not the guy that's, that's serving beer. He's the tax collector. And they were, Israel as a nation was under the authority, conquest if you like, invasion even, of the Roman army. And the Romans were collecting taxes from the people. And, but Zacchaeus was not only a publican, but he was chief among the publicans. That means that he was in authority. He was over probably an area or a district. And the other tax collectors reported to him. He may have been the point that the money came to before it went to the Romans. And the tax collectors in Bible times were well known for adding a little extra tax to the bill when they went collecting. And uh, they put whatever that extra was into their own pockets. And Zacchaeus was no different from those guys. He was probably skimming off the top as well. And uh, that's no doubt how he became rich. I doubt he became very wealthy because of the wages that the Romans were paying him. But rather he was a little corrupt. And it's quite easy to see from the scripture that the publicans, the tax collectors were despised by the Jews. They didn't like paying taxes to a nation that they were under the rule of. I mean, if we're honest, we're not thrilled with the idea of paying taxes either. We're glad to have roads, we're glad to have hospitals and schools, but we wish somebody else would pay for them. But life doesn't work like that. And so the Jews didn't like the tax collectors and the fact that it was their own people that were employed by the Romans to collect these taxes didn't make it any more pleasant. They were not popular people. Zacchaeus was not a man that was well liked in his city and in his community. I doubt he had a lot of social invitations to come over for dinner because of who he was. Verse 2 of chapter 19 lets us know that he was rich. Why does it tell us that Zacchaeus was rich? What's the point of that verse of scripture? The chapter before, in chapter 18, immediately leading up to this account, we read of a rich young ruler who came to Jesus and said, Good master, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And the Lord said to him, Well, you need to keep the commandments. Honor your mother and father and so on and so forth. And this young man said, I've done all those things since I was just a child. He was what we would consider a good person. But then the Lord, because of who he was, was able to see into this ruler's heart and to see that the wealth that he had, the possessions that he had, had their, if you like, tentacles wrapped around his heart and riches had a hold of his heart. And the Lord, with his insight, spoke to that young man and said, Sell what you have, give it to the poor, and come follow me, and you shall have treasure in heaven. And the scripture says that when he heard this, he was sorrowful, for he was very rich. Why was he sorrowful? He was not willing to separate himself from his riches. And before anybody feels their wallets begin to quiver this morning, I'm not preaching about giving. But this young man's heart was a prisoner to his wealth. And the Lord went on to say how hard it is for those that have riches to enter into the kingdom of God. And then he went to say, for it is easier for a camel to go through a needle's eye than for a rich man to enter into the kingdom of God. Now, most people seem to assume that that's talking about a small gate to a city, not a literal sewing needle. It was called the eye of the needle. And the, the disciples, it says, when they heard this, they said, well, who can be saved? Because in their mind, in their natural thinking, the rich could pretty much do anything. If you had enough money, you could make things happen. 
But the Lord said it's hard for a rich man to enter into the kingdom of God. And then the very next chapter, we find Zacchaeus, who the scripture specifically tells us is a rich man, who is not a good man, like the rich young ruler. And yet in the story of Zacchaeus, he finds his savior. He meets the Lord and he responds. And so the Lord is letting us know that while riches can be a problem, being rich doesn't exclude you from the kingdom of God. The issue is an issue of the heart. It's where those riches feature in your heart that matters. It's not a sin to be rich. It's also, that's, that's some things that some people think which is wrong. It's also wrong to believe that God wants you to be rich. God wants you to be rich with heavenly riches. He will bless us materially, but He doesn't guarantee that you will be rich and have all, you know, the blab it and grab it belief and claim, name it and claim it and, you know. I don't matter how many times I confess it, I still haven't got a Ferrari. Maybe I haven't said it enough yet. Maybe I lack faith. I don't know what it is. Problem is, if I got into a Ferrari, I could probably hardly get out of the thing. But riches is not the issue, but rather the heart of man is the issue. Amen. And so, let's take it a step a step further back. So there's, there's one little thing we can see from the rich young ruler in the chapter before. Zacchaeus, the Bible tells us, lived in Jericho, city of Jericho. Jesus, when you look at the Gospels, didn't have much to do with Jericho during his ministry. He spoke about Jericho when he told the well-known story of the Good Samaritan. In Luke chapter 10, spoke of how a traveler was going from Jerusalem down to Jericho and he fell amongst thieves and he was robbed and beaten half to death it's not a very complimentary use of Jericho as a location what's interesting is Jericho was not far from Jerusalem it's only about 15 miles or thereabouts and you may look at different measurements but the, the point I want to make is it's not far and yet with all of the coming and going of Jesus and his disciples during his ministry doesn't seem to feature in Jericho too much, which is interesting. I want to take you back to the Old Testament, if you will, and we're going to go a bit of history and come back to the New. In Joshua chapter 6. If you're a little warm in the back half of the church, that's because we've had to turn the cool off a little bit because, as you may notice, we have a new water feature in the ceiling, and I'd rather that didn't fall on your head. So if you are a little cool, if you want to move forward, the front half still has the cool on. So now's your opportunity to up and move forward where it's a little bit cooler. and see some people fanning themselves, so there's your chance. When we hit the book of Joshua in the Old Testament, the books that lead up to Joshua, many of you will, be, will realize that Moses was leading the Israelites through the, through the wilderness to the Promised Land. They came out of Exodus, wandering in the wilderness, coming to the Promised Land. And just as they are preparing to enter the promised land Moses' time is finished that's another story but Moses' life comes to an end and Joshua is installed as the leader of the people of Israel and in the book of Joshua we find in the chapters leading up to chapter 6 that the Lord just as he miraculously parted the waters of the Red Sea for Moses to lead the Israelites across the Lord miraculously parted the waters of a flooded Jordan River for the Israelites to cross into the promised land and in Joshua chapter 6, we find ourselves in the midst of the story of the battle for Jericho. Jericho is the first city 
the fir- at least the first fortified city that Joshua and the Israelites encountered when they crossed the Jordan River, came into the Promised Land. And without taking a lot of time, just to sort of paraphrase the story a little bit, Joshua sent some spies into the city. They went in to see what was going on, what the people were talking about, what their thoughts about Israel were, I guess to look for any structural weaknesses, how to get in, how to win the battle, as you would. We know that the spies, when they were in there, came in contact with a lady whose name was Rahab, and that while the soldiers were looking for the spies, Rahab hid the spies. I believe it was on the roof of her house or on the, the awning of her house. And as because she'd done them that favor, she, make, she asked them for a promise. She said, okay, we know you guys are going to wipe us out. Please promise me, because I've been good to you, that when you come, that you'll take care of me and my family. And the men made a commitment to her. They said, if you will bind this scarlet cord so basically like a red piece of rope you'll bind that in your window so it's hanging out of your window then when we come whoever is in your house will be safe as long as that's there and you're in the house they were the terms and conditions and so we know that that she said okay that seems like a good deal jericho was quite an imposing city Tradition and and possibly some of history suggests that the walls of the city of Jericho were so significant that they could ride chariots on the top of them. That's not your average garden fence. It's a pretty significant wall. And so this was no, no small city. This was no small challenge that faced the Israelites. And so Joshua, at the direction of the Lord, came up with a very unusual battle plan. He was to take the people, was to get the priests and the trumpets out the front and to take the people and to walk around while the, while the priests were blowing their trumpets, to walk around the city once. And that was it for the day. Go back to camp, get up the next morning, do the same thing. All these people walking around the city with these bunch of guys blowing trumpets at the front. Can you imagine what it was like looking over the wall in Jericho? All these crazy Israelites were walking around following these, those trumpets. I don't know how early they started in the morning, but I would have got sick of those trumpets pretty fast. And this went on for six days. And then on the seventh day, they were instructed to go around the city seven times. Nobody was allowed to speak while all this was going on. On the seventh day, they were instruct, as they were going around, and when the signal was given, they were commanded to shout... For the Lord had given them the city. And so after lap seven, when Joshua gave the signal, the people shouted with victory, with triumph, and God miraculously caused those incredible walls to collapse, to come down, and the people were able to go in. The soldiers went in, conquered the city. Rahab and her family were saved. And the city was specific. They were given very specific instructions that they were not to take anything from the city. No spoils. Couldn't take any finances they found, anything that they liked. It was to be left. It was, it was dedicated completely to the Lord and it was to be symbolic of the, the, the delivering power of God. This, this first city was to stand as a token, as a symbol for what God had done for his people. In fact, so... Uh, important was it that they didn't take anything or that the Jericho was destroyed was that a curse was added and if you're in Joshua chapter 6 you see I think verse 26 is about the last verse 
It says this, it says, And Joshua adjured them, or he spoke to them strongly at that time, saying, Cursed be the man before the Lord who rises up and builds this city Jericho. It was not to be rebuilt. He shall lay the foundation thereof in his firstborn, and in his youngest son shall he set up the gates of it. Now, when you read on in Old Testament history, you'll find that even though there was that curse, somebody at some point chose to ignore that curse. And during the time of Ahab's reign, who was a wicked king, and there's not a test on this later, so if you don't know all of this, that's okay. But during Ahab's time when they were worshipping idols and, and there wasn't the reverence and the honor for God that there should be, in 1 Kings chapter... Let's, let's turn there. 1 Kings chapter 16. Take a little bit of time. Try and stitch all this back together once we've pulled it apart. 1 Kings chapter 16 and verse 33. Still here a few pages. 1 Kings 16 and 33 says, And Ahab, who was the king, made a grove, and Ahab did more to provoke the Lord God of Israel to anger than all the kings of Israel that were before him. How'd you like that reputation? A man who made God more angry than all the kings that went before him. But then the next verse, verse 34, says, In his days did heal the Bethelite build Jericho. He rebuilt the city. And he laid the foundation thereof in Abiram his firstborn, and set up the gates thereof in his younger son, Segub, I'm guessing you pronounce that, I'm not really sure, according to the word of the Lord, which he spoke by Joshua, the son of Nun. So the gates being put on was the final act of the rebuilding of the city. And the curse was that if you rebuilt the city, you'd lay the foundation in your firstborn or your eldest child, and you'd put the gates up in your youngest child or your last child. Now, some commentators suggest that this expression meant that all of his children, from the firstborn to the youngest, died during that process so that he had no descendants and nobody to carry his name because he had disobeyed what the Lord had said and suffered the consequences. So that's pretty serious. So with that in mind, that's, that's where, in a, a biblical historical sense, we first learn about Jericho. With that in mind... This is the city, the rebuilt city of Jericho that we find Jesus passing through in Luke chapter 19. It's interesting that the scripture says that he was passing through. He may never have intended to stop in Jericho. We don't know. But this is the city. And so between his conversation in chapter 18 with the rich young ruler and his coming into the city of Jericho, Jesus heals a blind man. You can read that at the end of chapter 18 later on if you want to. So there's a crowd that's already following him. They're following him along. Basically, most of them were looking to get something from Jesus. And once he's spoken with, with, with the rich young ruler and he goes away, he's discouraged. Jesus comes along, opens a blind man's eyes, and then begins to move into Jericho. And so this crowd that he already had is growing because of the miracle that's just taken place because they want to receive something from Jesus. 
you've got to understand it was in a time when a lot of things nowadays that we can have treated very simply, they didn't have the knowledge for. And so there was no shortage of lame, of blind, of cripples, of lepers. There was no shortage of people for Jesus to do miracles for. And so this crowd is pressing around. Some of them are just coming to see the spectacle. They just want to see something amazing happen. Others are there because they're desperate and they need something in their bodies. Maybe a family member needs a miracle, a healing, a deliverance, whatever it may be. But this crowd is, is buzzing and it's growing because they've just seen this, this blind man have his eyes open. And so in the middle of this, this throng of people, have you ever been in a really big crowd that was moving? It can be a little scary. I remember many years ago, my wife and I were in Melbourne and we went to, I think it was the show, whatever they, they don't call it the Royal Show in Melbourne, they call it something else. But we were in this crowd and I just remember basically having no choice. We were just, this crowd was moving and we were going with the crowd. It was like being caught in a rip. It was just, you were in this throng of people. And it's in that environment, in that crowd, that there's this little guy that nobody wants to help. You know, nowadays, you know, if we've got kids, we don't let, let the kids come to the front so they can see. Nobody's helping Zacchaeus. Everybody's laughing at the little teacher. Nobody wants to help Zacchaeus. And he finds a tree. I, looked, I had a bit of a look at what sycamore trees were like. Fortunately for Zacchaeus, they had some low-hanging branches. He had something to get onto to get up into the tree. It wasn't this poor little short guy trying to jump up and catch a branch. But he was able to get on some of the lower branches and climb up to the, the, the higher branches just to see Jesus. Now, what may have begun for Zacchaeus, the simple curiosity, something was stirring in his heart, I believe, for something more. And the reason I say that is because there was a lot of curious people there that day. But the Bible says that Jesus stopped under the tree, or near the tree at least. I don't know if you could get under it with those low branches. But he stopped there, he looked up, and he called Zacchaeus by name. Now, whether he knew the man's name or he just knew because he was God, I don't know. But he called Zacchaeus by name, and he, he, in, he was not very socially correct. He invited himself to Zacchaeus' house, at least to eat, possibly even to spend the night. He said, I must come and abide at your house. And everybody that was watching was, was shocked. Because Jesus had this reputation for eating with publicans and sinners. And the religious people didn't like it. But in the presence of Jesus, and this is significant, when Zacchaeus comes down from the tree, you're probably thinking, oh, I didn't think he could see me. How did he know my name? All these thoughts are, you know, you know, the servant's got the day off. What are we going to eat? We'll have to ring out for pizza or something. And he, all these thoughts are going through Zacchaeus' mind. And he comes down from the tree and he's standing with the Lord and there's just something about being in the presence of Jesus that he began to want to change. He didn't, he didn't try to impress the Lord. He didn't say, oh, we're going to have a great feed. You should see my dinner table. We've got air conditioning. We've got all this fancy stuff. He said, Lord, if I've taken anything that doesn't belong to me, if I've robbed somebody, if I've been dishonest, if I've, if I've, basically he was confessing. It wasn't really an if, it was an I have. Maybe he was just putting an if in there to protect himself, I don't know. But he was saying, Lord, I will restore what I have stolen, even fourfold. There's something about being in the presence 
of Jesus that causes us to want to change, that makes us aware that we are sinners and causes us to say, Lord, I want to be different. I don't want to stay the same because the, the amazing thing about the presence of Jesus is that is it, it, can make, it can make you aware that you are a sinner, but it does not condemn you for that sin. It will convict you for that sin and it will cause you to want to change. People tend to condemn one another. But Jesus brought conviction. And Zacchaeus said, Lord, basically he was saying, I want to change. And the Lord said, this day salvation is come to this house. When you respond to the presence of Jesus and repent of your sins and are willing to allow him to tell you what you need to do, salvation is available for everybody. Aren't you glad for that this morning? Amen. Amen. Now let's try and put some of this together and see what it says to us today. Rahab lived in a city that was marked for judgment, annihilation. God made a way for her to escape. Zacchaeus lived in the same city, the second version, that would forever be associated with that judgment and with a curse. And Jesus came to his house in the midst of a city whose reputation was a curse. The king of kings, the savior of mankind, sought out... I mean, it, it never fails to amaze me that in the midst of a crowd, God picks out individuals. You see it throughout the scripture. You know, he's walking with a crowd of people. The woman with the issue of blood touches the hem of his garment. And he stops and says, who touched me? And they're almost like, they're almost sarcastic. Are you serious? Who touched you? There's hundreds, if not thousands of people bumping into each other. And you said, who touched you? But he felt that virtue go out from him. And he, he, he responds to that woman and she's given a miracle. There's probably dozens of other needs in that same crowd. And yet he stops and ministers to that one lady. The whole time we know that Jairus is standing there getting really impatient because at his house there's somebody dying. And this lady's holding up the process because he's the one that came to Jesus and said, will you come? And Jesus said, I'll come. And now this woman's caused him to be late. Every man in the building said amen. But, and, and finally, well, they, they, they finish ministering to this lady and they're on their way to Jairus' house. A servant comes and says, don't bother Jesus anymore, she's dead. And the Lord says, don't worry about it, let's keep going. And he does the miraculous. Individuals picked out of a crowd. That's one of the amazing things about God is His ability to minister to us corporately and individually at exactly the same time. We can't do that. We're not capable of that. Um, I, can, I can speak to you this morning as a group, as a congregation, and I'm, I'm actually trying not to speak deliberately to individuals. But the Lord is able, when we worship Him, for His presence to move in here, and all of us to feel his presence and to worship him and to feel him ministering to us as if we are the only person in the building. God did that for Rahab. He did it for Zacchaeus. Amen. You see, sin is a curse that we all bear. Sin is a curse that all of humanity has had to bear because of decisions that were made by our great by the power of however many you go back to Adam and Eve 
we bear the curse of sin. See, a curse is not necessarily some, you know, we think, when you think of a curse, a lot of people think of witchcraft, but really a curse is a, a bad promise. In a lot of ways, if you do this, they're, they're the consequences. And that's what sin is. If we sin, there's a promise that we want nothing to do with. We don't want that promise. There are some promises in the book that I'm not interested in. Right, the promises that say if you don't do this and you don't do that, you'll face the judgment of God. I don't want those promises. Somebody else can have those ones. And that's basically what sin is. Sin, when we sin, there is a promise from God that there are consequences for sin. And that hangs over us just like it hung over the city of Jericho in Joshua chapter 6. All those people were in that city. The Bible says that it was shut up tight. Nobody went in. Nobody came out. Nobody escaped Jericho. But under that judgment and under that curse, there was a lady who said, I know that your God is God. And I know that he's going to give you our city. And I need a hope. I need something to hang on to. And Zacchaeus found hope where we, he wasn't, he didn't even know he was looking for hope and he found hope. Amen. You see, the scripture tells us that these bodies are like houses. Apostle Paul said, No, you're not, that your bodies are the temple of the Holy Ghost. In another place, Jesus said that when an evil spirit's cast out of a man, it wanders around in dry places and it comes back finds its house swept and clean, moves in with seven worst friends. So it describes people in a lot of ways as being like houses. They're a place that something spiritual can reside. That's not freaky, that's biblical. But God's desire is that His Spirit would be what lives within us. Not the curse of sin, most definitely he doesn't want anything satanic or demonic to be living within us, but he wants his spirit to live in us so that we might be his temples. And while we're still in sin, we live under the curse. But when we hear the gospel, when somebody tells us about what Jesus did in their life, of what he can do for them and, and tells them, well, you, I have this problem, the Lord delivered me and he healed me and he turned my life around, we hear about something and perhaps not literally, but figuratively, we might climb a tree to have a look. And that's what people do when they come to church for the first time. They're climbing a tree. They just want to see what's going on. See what these crazy Pentecostals are talking about. You know, I've, you know my brother, my sister, my friend, my neighbor, they're going to this church and they're talking about some things that are happening there. They're climbing a tree. They want to have a look. And when you're in the house of the Lord, like you are this morning... The Lord is calling you out of your tree. And he's saying, if you will come down today, I want to abide in your house. I want to live in your house. I want to come and visit you. Isn't it amazing that we can be the house of God? That God has said that I will fill you with my spirit. It was prophesied in the Old Testament. It was fulfilled in the New Testament when on the day of Pentecost in Acts chapter 2, all those people were having that prayer meeting, 120 people. You imagine, there's, there's probably not 120 people here, but can you imagine if all of us on the signal ran out into Balajura through the streets, all speaking crazy languages? Can you imagine what the reaction would be like? 
Lock the doors, honey. There's crazies in the street. The police would be called. Everybody would be taking their kids into the house. That's what it was like. 120 people almost exploded out of an upper room, speaking in other tongues, in languages that they'd never learnt at school, about how awesome God was. And everybody said, well, what's going on here? These people are drunk. They're crazy. Nowadays, we'd assume they were on drugs. And Peter stood up and he said, this that you see, he said, is that which was spoken by the prophet Joel hundreds of years before, where the Lord said, in the last days, saith God, I will pour out my spirit upon all flesh... And your sons and your daughters shall prophesy. He said, this is that. See, Israel as a nation, I'm getting off book here, but that's okay. Israel as a nation had been his house. They were called the house of Israel. But because they disobeyed God, because they did not keep his word, he he put that relationship, if you like, kind of on hold for a minute, and he made the gospel available to the whole world. And I'm glad he did, because that includes you and I. And he said that we are lively stones, that we are built together to form a spiritual house. And as he said to the Israelites, I will be with you, now he says to us that he will be with us that he will never leave us nor forsake us. And in Acts chapter 2, he said that Peter said this promise. What promise? The promise that they had, that Joel spoke about, that they'd received, he said, it's for you. That's everybody that was listening. He said, it's for your kids. Some of them may have been there, some of them may not. And he said, it's for as all that are afar off, even as many as the Lord our God shall call. Now, some people don't like the idea of the Holy Ghost, but they like the idea of being called by God. If you're called by God, or if God is in the process of calling you, then that promise belongs to you as well. The promise is unto you, all that are afar off, even as many as the Lord our God shall call. We know, we can very quickly dismiss some of the arguments. One of the arguments is, It was just for that day to get the church off the ground. Well, it continued to happen throughout the book of Acts again and again and again. It's been happening ever since. You can look it up through church history. There were people that spoke in other tongues when they filled the Holy Ghost. They didn't all belong to one denomination. That's the awesome thing about the Spirit of God. There are Catholics being filled with the Holy Ghost. There are Anglicans being filled with the Holy Ghost. There are Baptists and Methodists and every other you can think of that are receiving the baptism of the Holy Ghost. Why? Because the promise is unto you. Because the call of God is still going out. And God, God calls people beyond boundaries and limitations and organizations and countries and cultures. And he calls and he says, if you will come down, I'm coming to your house today. Stand with me if you would this morning. If I could have a musician, please. I hope we've got a little bit more out of the story of Zacchaeus this morning. Let me show you one more little thing that many of you already know from that story of Jericho. It's interesting. Numbers are something that God obviously pays attention to because there's patterns of numbers in the Scripture. I'm not smart enough to work all that out. But seven's a significant number with God. 
Seven days of creation, seven seems to be the number that God uses for completion or perfection. They were to march around Jericho for seven days to finish what God started. The trumpets were blown every day. Every day they blew the trumpets, the people were silent. But at the signal, the people didn't know when the signal was going to happen. They weren't all walking around with a stopwatch going, 10, 9, 8. They were just waiting. They were told to be ready. Don't say anything, but wait and be ready. And when the signal came from Joshua, those people who'd walked faithfully, sometimes not having a clue what they were doing. I imagine that a lot of them, look, sorry, fellas, I gave the ladies a hard time before. It's your turn to have a hard time. Men are rational people. We like to understand things. You know, that's why so often ladies get to God ahead of us because they trust what they can feel. Men can't work it out, so we don't trust it. Here's all these men, soldiers. This is the stupidest battle plan I've ever heard in my entire life. Got this sword strapped to my hip, shield on my arm, and I'm walking around in circles like some sort of stupid tourist. And then the next day, I hope we're not doing this again tomorrow. Can you imagine what it was like? But they were at least willing to shut up and do what they were told. Some of us men could learn something about that. (laughs) One honest man in the building. Thank you, Jesus. But on that seventh day, after trusting God's plan, after putting aside all their thoughts of tradition, normal battles, how they'd won other victories along the way, after putting all that aside and just doing what God said, there came a point when a signal was given. And the combined sound of a shout and a trumpet brought the walls down and brought victory. The Apostle Paul, hundreds if not thousands of years later, would dictate a letter to the Thessalonians where he would say, The Lord himself shall descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of the archangel and with the trump of God. And the dead in Christ shall rise first and we which are alive and remain shall be caught up together with them to be with the Lord just as the Lord miraculously completed that project we walk with him by faith in a day and an age where Christianity is ridiculed and doesn't make a lot of sense to natural men but we do what God says because we trust him we worship him we praise him we serve him We do things sometimes that we don't understand because we believe that at an appointed time that only He knows, there's going to be the combination of a shout and a trumpet and everything's going to change. And we're going to go to be with Him forever. That's the promise. That's the promise that Rahab got a hold of. That's the promise that Zacchaeus got a hold of. And that's the promise that Peter said is to you and to your children and to all that are afar off. I'd like us to just bow our heads and close our eyes for a moment if we